Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. Good morning. I'm going to be reading from 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 9. You guys turn there if you want. Second Corinthians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patience, patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for an opportunity to uh, hear from your word, to be spoken to from your divine nature. God, ask for your spirit to be present in all of us, Lord, to myself as I open the scripture, to uh, our digital team in the back. To everybody who came here today to hear from your word, Lord, please speak to us. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Um, can we turn me down a little bit? I feel like I'm on getting a fair amount of reverb. Has anybody here ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? The Jefferson Bible. Yeah, a couple of yeses in the back. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this part of American history, Thomas Jefferson actually took the Bible, cut parts out of it, and made his own. Give you some details of that. This is according to Smithsonian Magazine. Thomas Jefferson, together with several of his founding, fellow founding fathers, was influenced by the principles of deism and constructed and envisioned a supreme being as a sort of watchmaker who created the world but no longer intervened daily. In fact, Jefferson was devoted to the teaching of Christ, but he didn't agree with how they were interpreted by what we would say Christianity, but this article says biblical scholars, including the writers of the four Gospels who he considered untrustworthy correspondence. So Jefferson created his own Bible. He took a sharp instrument, probably a penknife, to existing copies of the New Testament, and pasting up his own accounts of Christ's philosophy, distinguished it from what he called the corruption of schismatizing followers. Jefferson purged the material he judged as, quote, contrary to reason. He was convinced that Christ was a great teacher of universal moral truths, but it was unnecessary to close those truths in the miraculous. 
especially when, in Jefferson's view, Jesus never claimed to be divine. Jefferson's arrangements of the extracts provides a chronological narrative of Christ's life from his birth on the very first page to his death, but does not include the resurrection. Jefferson, because he spoke four to five language, actually cross-referenced versions of the Bible in Latin, Greek, and English, and pasted together this 46-ish page document, which was his own version of the New Testament. That sounds so intriguing to me. If you didn't believe that Jesus was God, if you don't believe in the supernatural power of this document, why would you take the time parsing verbs in multiple different languages to get what you thought was the appropriate account of the Bible? Having been through seminary, I can tell you this was not an easy task. But I I think it speaks to the fact of how much comfort people can get from some of the ideas in Christianity, even if we want to come ultimately to reject Jesus as Savior. Now, for the record, I'm not suggesting doing that. But I am pointing out in, in a country that had, has largely Christian foundations and sort of a cultural Christianity to it, how often it is we find people who take comforts out of things that Jesus said without ultimately accepting the great comforter himself. I've heard it even said of some Uh, this is uh, according to one old preacher, that after they had, by their logic or their thought, annihilated Christianity and proved it to be untrue, they acknowledged that they had spoiled an excellently comforting delusion and that they could almost sit down and weep to think it was not a reality. Now, it's interesting... um, that in this passage of Scripture today, we'll notice the word comfort is used nine times in just a few of those short verses, repetitively, over and over. And let me just say, usually when the Bible emphasizes something, it's to recognize that, you know, in this case, if, if the Bible's talking a lot about comfort, it's because these people weren't feeling a lot of comfort, To parse through some of those words, there's two that stand out. The first is paraklesis, and the second is parakaleo. One is the comfort itself as a noun, and the other works kind of as a verb, to be comforted. Now, it's interesting that there's a related word in Scripture, and I'll, I'll jump here to John 14, where Jesus says, I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. That word is Parakletos, that Jesus says will abide for you with you forever. So we see this word nine times in four verses, and it's very related to the word that we use for Holy Spirit. In John 16, Jesus says again, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I don't go away, the comforter, Parakletos, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. See, the topic of comfort has very powerful, what we would call, pneumatological implications. 
God's comfort in our lives is an important blessing to receive from God and also may be a barometer for certain things that he's doing in your life. If you've read any number of books about Christian life or Christian growth, um, you'll see references to fluctuations of God, how God works in your life. Maybe you've heard it termed as peaks and valleys. Maybe you've heard it called suffering and blessings or ebb and flow. Some of the spiritual writers, though, use these words. Consolation and desolation to describe these seasons. And those Greek words that we just talked about in some of your Bible versions, instead of comfort, you'll see the word consolation where it talks about parakletos. Can I see by a show of hands, has anybody here noticed in your spiritual life a sense of peaks and valleys or ebb and flow in your felt presence of God. Has anybody ever walked through that? Much, if not most, if not all of the room. My first point today is that God gives us spiritual comfort. God gives us spiritual comfort. See, there's times in your life where God will give you a close sense of feeling close to God. When Dave Rossing is up there and worship is rich, right? Ever had those moments? You open the Bible and it's just like truth, truth, truth flowing into your heart. Maybe it's times when you pray and it's like God's felt presence is thick in the room. God refers to himself in verse 3 as the father of mercies and the God of of all comforts. Not only does he provide those spiritual comforts for us, he provides what we could call common comforts. Maybe that's a sense of community that we find in relationships. Maybe that's the sense of intimacy we we take out of romantic love. Or maybe it's something simple like heated car seats in the winter. No matter what your sense of comfort is, we recognize all of these things are from God. And as this verse goes on, we, it talks more about and specifically is relating to the comforts that we get from God. It's interesting, those believers, if we're not careful, we can start to measure God's presence in our life by how heavily we feel that sense of consolation or a felt sense of God's presence. I mean, think about it. God is God, right? He could give you a theophany every time you pray. I mean, he could make a burning bush out of anything. He could, if you sat on the beach and you were praying, he could split the sea like the Red Sea, right? Think about this. You could go spearfishing without getting wet. Why doesn't God just do that for us, right? Every time we come to him, just give this this powerful spiritual relationship. My second point, though, is that God teaches us things through times of the valleys or through times of what some spiritual writers would call desolation. 
God intentionally allows seasons where you may feel less of him in order that you feel called to seek more of him. See, we've heard it said in our broader evangelical circles that what? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, right? And then sometime, maybe decades into this relationship, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, if you're in this season of a long valley, you're like, Lord, what happened to the relationship? It's hard. I don't know if I feel you right now. The folks in this passage in 2 Corinthians are going through that. That's why this writer took time to lay out the fact that God is there to provide comfort is because as a community, this community was walking through a valley. See, desolation often comes right after spiritual consolation. And and some writers recognize that many of us, when we came to the faith, know this great inner joy from receiving the creator of all things. But sometime during our walk, the disappearance of those felt effects of consolation led to a sense of felt darkness or a questioning of the faith. Like rocky soil in the parable of the sower, Luke 8.13, and it says, the one The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root, and they believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Paul is writing to this congregation to encourage them during this time of testing, lest they fall away. Some people walking through times like this may feel like the Lord has left us. I don't feel the presence of the Lord in my house. Or they dive into activities to kind of not think about this. Although I'm a proponent of memorizing scripture, you can get into the roteness of the words of the Bible without addressing the Spirit. To prove my point, I'll say one of the guys that I met that most knew the Bible, as well as any of my seminary professors, was actually an atheistic Jewish man with a PhD and a photographic memory who denied any semblance of God but could pull scriptures out of the text word by word as well as anybody I've met in my life, but would deny the abject reality of a creator. Psalm 13 verses 1 through 2 talks about this experience in the life of David where he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? You see, when God wants his love to fill you characterologically, ironically, he may take you to a place like this. So that some of the consolations you've known in the past, those warm, fuzzy relationships, those rich times in the word for truth's sake, or even those comfy seats may not feel so comfortable anymore. 
what God is teaching you is he may be taking away some of the consolations you find in the topical spiritual things to teach you a deeper love of God for who he is and for the glory that he has. In verse 7 it says, back in 2 Corinthians, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comforts. Paul's laying this out in Scripture saying, there will be peaks and valleys. There will be ebbs and flows. But those valleys will lead to peaks as you stay steadfast in the Lord. Amen. Jesus was a life example of this, wasn't he? He experienced some dark times on the cross. I don't know about you, but the weight of my sin has at times made my life extraordinarily difficult. And to imagine Jesus on that cross bearing not only my sin, but the reality of all sin throughout space and time on his very soul would be a darkness that I can't imagine. The beatings, the embarrassment, the isolation, I feel like that just would have been a drop in the bucket of bearing the sins of mankind on that cross. My third point, desolation's a part of our trials in life. Desolation's a part of our trials. Let me take you to an example in the Bible. We're gonna, I'm going to read from Job. You can flip there if you like. I'm in Job chapter 1, starting at verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on all the earth. Isn't that neat to think about? God's upstairs in the heavenlies bragging about his faithful servants. Have you considered my servant Job? What an honor. The verse goes on. Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands, only do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. What? <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, that's okay. God's upstairs in the heavenlies bragging about you as an honor, honored servant of his. And then in comes the devil to check in with God. And God's like, hey, have you seen Sam Schreiner? Devil's like, oh, yeah, I got. Let me at him. This is, it's kind of funny, though, in this description of this whole thing. I mean, the way the devil described it, it's almost like a dog on a leash, right? Like he can't do anything in his own power. He has to get God's permission. It's interesting. In Hebrews, the Bible says, God chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as a discipline that God's treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, 
then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters of God. So I, w- I want to make a distinction here. I want to make a distinction here beca- between God's discipline for sin, like the sin, the weight of the sin on your life and the punishments and the outcomes for that, and then what some writers call desolation and this spiritual valley that's just a part of our walk. Because I think Scripture is intentional at separating those two things out. In fact, in Job's life, Job is about to get some suffering, but it's not because he was doing evil. He was so upright, God was bragging about him. But here's what Satan is saying, and here's where the section of 2 Corinthians takes traction in Job. What Satan is saying is that Job's obedience to God is a transactional relationship. That Job's obedience to God is a transactional relationship. In verse 10, he says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. What Satan is saying to God is Job only honors you because you gave him stuff. Job's got a lot of comforts. Of course he praises your name. Take that stuff away. Job's got everything. We'll see what happens when he's got nothing, if he truly honors you. Because Job does ABC, you give him XYZ. He's obeying because you answer his prayers and you bless him. In fact, what Job's doing, according to Satan's lie, is he's loving himself, God, and using you to get things. Give him outer darkness and inner darkness, and he'll curse your name. How do you think God would feel about that? If he knew that the people that were most righteous in his kingdom were just using him to get things. I'd propose today we're not, any of us, purely innocent of that. You ever bargained with God? Hey, God, but I've been so good. Why isn't this working out? Man, God, I really wanted that promotion, and I've been praying double hard for it. Lord, I've been praying for these kids forever. Why don't they just honor me? See, the story isn't just about Satan saying all this about Job. It's actually Satan saying all this about us. That's why he's called the accuser. That's his role as he interfaced with God. See, we will be tried in our lives and in our faith as to whether or not we see God in a transactional relationship to us. There will be trials that remove comforts from your life to test your faith with God. The book of, the book of Job goes on. <laughs> After all of this, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? Right? Guess who's in a transactional relationship with God? But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin from his lips. Throughout this passage, Job acknowledges horrible feelings to God, but it says Job does not sin against God. 
He doesn't mar God's glory. He doesn't attack God. He doesn't listen to that wife. What he does do throughout the story, though, is acknowledge how this hurts, right? It's real. Losing, I mean, I know some people in this room have, have had come on hard times, but I don't know anyone who's lost 10 kids, been made homeless, and gotten horrible disease with sores from the top of your head to the sole of your feet. Like, that's a bad day. And Job is God's most righteous See, this is a prime example of how our trials in life may not, oftentimes, are not punitive. What they are is developmental. Developmental. See, Job is honoring God in his times of desolation, but his wife is not passing that test. In, the, in the, this case, spiritual feelings... In the case of consolation and desolation, those feelings don't always correlate with maturity either. In fact, some of us, when we first came to God, get this great consolation, like, God is real and I'm saved. And as we progress, you would think, well, the more I'm spending time in the Lord, the more I'm reading my Bible, the more I mature, those feelings are going to increase, right? Like, the longer you've been exercising, the more endorphins you get. It Wouldn't God work the same way? This is where we as Christians can be kind of clueless to God and what's going on. If we neglect to ask God, what are you doing in this time of trial? What's going on with me when times are challenging? If you're not aware... You can miss that God may be removing comforts in your life to draw you to the great comforter, his spirit, to Jesus Christ, and ultimately to make you more like him during those times of trial, to prepare you to be in heaven forever. If you've ever had a time like Job where you've wondered, God, where are you? Why is it things are going wrong and I feel bad? Why is it that I feel bored when I pray or disconnected? Then you might be in a place where God is calling you in that day into deeper relationship. 1 Peter verse 4, sorry, chapter 4, verse 12 through 15, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal amongst you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you, sh you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. See, God went a little bit deeper with Job. He didn't give him a topical verse and say, hey, Job, you know what? Guess what? God will never give you more than you can handle. Have a good one. His friends, who he called for consolation, even reproved him. Yet we can see his calamities are not because of his misdeeds. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready for it. To go back to that theme of developmental nature, what Paul is saying here when he's talking about, I fed you with milk, is that you've gotten spiritual things that make you feel good. But to come into a deeper sense of maturity, you're going to have to eat some meat and not just have sugary filling in your life. I can't tell you all the reasons why God allows for our spirituality to go through valleys, the why and the how. To be frank, I think intentionally he leaves some of that a mystery so that we learn faith. But I will tell you this, the outcome of those things is God wants to build your confidence in him and break you of your idolatry. My fourth point, you can't have God on your terms. You can't have God on your terms. Job at the time thought his darkness was absolute. He thought his trials were not going to end. And he had a couple options. Number one, he could stay with it and maintain the faith. Number two, he could back off, let go, or even walk away. There's a story about Ted Turner. Um, Ted Turner had a troubled childhood, and his 15-year-old sister died of lupus. Ted's father, who eventually committed suicide, renounced religion when that happened. He said, if this is the type of God God is, I want nothing to do with him. Shortly thereafter, Ted Turner abandoned any semblance of the faith. Though we as committed believers can look at Ted Turner or Thomas Jefferson as making colossal misgivings about the faith, I would suggest that in our own life, We have pockets of belief where we do a little bit of the same thing. God, I trust you, but not with my giving. God, I trust you, but not with my marriage, like I'm going to fix that. God, I trust you, but not with my sense of comfort, my sense of empowerment, and not with my sense of church. That's going to make me feel good, or else I'm not in. See, thoughts like that may be actually a doorway into the valley and into your felt distance from God. See, the the theological reality is God is always there. He's always present in your life. But oftentimes, if he's allowing a little bit of felt sense of distance, he may be calling you to give up some of those common comforts to seek the greater Comfort in him. See, he has rivers of living water just waiting for you. But he is waiting for you to be ready. How do we engage God in light of all this? There's a couple things we can do to start to take a look and dig a little bit deeper. Number one is we can take an inventory of our life. See, In our culture, it's common to want to jump from consolation to consolation to consolation. With the advent of new gadgets and and information and entertainment, 
we can bounce from comfort to comfort to comfort as fast as our thumbs can move, right? If I don't like this streamed version of a movie, I'll just click another one. If I don't like that, I'll click another one. If I don't like that, I'll get an online game. If I don't like that, I'll go find out who's having a meetup and run out to it. None of that causes me to have to investigate my heart deeply or engage in a deep process change. Let me ask you this morning, as you're taking an inventory, what season of life does God have you in? It's important to notice, does God have you in a season that's kind of a peak for you? See, trying to reinforce and encourage some things in your life that you're doing. You're reading the Bible and it feels good. God's showing you truth. He's reinforcing those things. If you're going through a valley, it may be time to take that inventory and find out, is there some things he's trying to remove from your life to give you more of himself? The second thing you can do is expect those times of peaks and valleys, the ebbs and the flows. One example that's really visible to us is like is watching kids develop, right? I mean, if you have a, a two-year-old kid and he's crawling on the floor wearing a diaper, like maybe that's okay. By the time they're 12, if they're crawling on the floor wearing a diaper, like you got a big problem. It's been said about Christians that we, as a, quote, spiritual animal, I don't know if I like that word, but you'll, you'll get it in a second, we're the only animal on earth that can exist without growing up. That we can somehow stay in a perpetual state of non-development. Everything else in the world grows up and matures and goes through a cycle, but somehow our spirit, like, we can actually get in the way. The third thing you can do to help get yourself out of the way is pray. God's calling this church to a new place of intimacy. God's calling this church into a deeper sense of trust in Jesus and away from some of the spiritual feels that have perpetuated us for years. In James 1.12, he gives us a verse and says, Blessed is the man who, pers- who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That would be a great verse to pray. Lord, help me to persevere under trial, to be approved through this season, and prepare me to receive that crown of life that you have for me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you're everything to us, that you're opening our hearts today for a new way that we can be comforted. God, we ask you to meet us where we're hurting and where we're excited and where you're working in our life. Lord, help us open more deeply to you, to the work of your spirit in us, to see the gospel as an everyday repentance and removal of the old man and the opening to the new man. And Lord, help us grow towards you in glory. In your precious name, amen. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit alliancebible.church.